0: Luke chapter number 7, we're going to begin here in verse number 36 as the text leads in, Jesus has been giving testimony about John the Baptist, what he's doing, and then uh, he, in in the immediate verses, exposes some of the reasons of uh, the lack of the Pharisee's ability to believe, Uh, and then we'll see here Jesus at Simon's house. Uh, in Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse number 36 the Bible says there And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him and he went into the Pharisees house and he sat down to meat. and behold a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisees house brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears. And did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. And there was a certain creditor, which had two debtors, and the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love the most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, See, seest thou this woman? But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. And I want to speak on the thought this morning, loved as forgiven. Let's pray again. Father, as we get ready for the message and we have looked to the text. Lord, I pray that you would help it to settle into our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work freely amongst us, that your convicting power would be great, that your illuminating of our minds to the truth that you've revealed here will be uh, unmistakable. Lord, I pray that we would not lock it out, but that we would open our hearts to it. I pray that you'd bind the enemy, not give him liberty to work in this place. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be Uh, alone working in our hearts as the word is given in jesus name we pray amen as we look here in this story jesus is constantly interacting with pharisees sadducees common people it really everywhere he goes he has a heart to reach out to and to love everyone that he meets not everyone that he meets is lovely Uh, some are harder to love than others Uh, and then some are receptive to his overture of uh, of kindness and others rebuff him and keep him at arm's length and, uh, and, and he, he knows that. He is going through his ministry that way. He's dealing with people and their response to him on a daily basis and, uh, and he has to confront issues when they come up. It's interesting how the world around us thinks that uh, in order for us to show the love of Christ that you have to just say that anything and everything is acceptable to God whenever God clearly states there are things that are not. Jesus always responds kindly, but he always he always addresses sin, uh, and so in this in this case there's, there's not an exception. It's actually the opposite, uh, and so <clears throat> the message this morning is not going to be about her box of ointment. Most of the time whenever we hear messages from this text it has a lot to do with the ointment and uh, and all of its symbolism and what have you. That's really not the point this morning and so uh, I'm not going to really belabor that point or really deal with it at all. It's not that it's unimportant or that it's just not what God's given been laid on my heart this morning for the message. And so here, she, here he is dealing with the crowd and interacting with them. He's meeting their needs and he's addressing their uh, concerns, if you will, or their criticisms. He tells them about how John the Baptist has come and how John has paved the way. And uh, he goes through that and then he is dealing with just the normal, the normal pharisaical garbage, if you will. Just their normal religious mindset. It may seem strange if you're newer to our church to hear a pastor speak this way, but I'll just tell you straight out that religion will send more people to hell for eternity or the lake of fire for eternity uh, than most other vices that are out in the world because the religion as a whole uh, focuses on humanity and what we're supposed to do or have to do to obtain either salvation or blessing or this, that, or the other. When the truth of the matter is, what Jesus is espousing is not, he's not inviting someone to a religion, he's inviting everyone to a personal relationship with himself. And what Christianity is or should be this morning is a relationship with the Savior, a relationship with God the Father, a relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, not religion. Now, I I get good, and it's not always uh, wrong or ill-intended to say, you know, we've got, you know, old-time religion or uh, someone got religion. What they're meaning to say is, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I've entered into a relationship. Uh, but just so as a church, uh, I want to teach us the better way or the right way to think about these things. And, uh, and what we're trying to teach and encourage people to enter into is not religion but relationship. Religion doesn't, it may change the outer appearance, but it doesn't change the heart. God always works from the inside out. Satan always works from the outside in. And so if I'm going to change, I don't want it to be because I wanted to fit in or I was coerced or it was what was necessary uh, to obtain a position that I wanted or things of that nature. I want it to be genuine and true because God changed my heart and when God changes a heart, The outward manifestation of that change is natural. It doesn't have to be worked at or put on. I'm not saying we don't have to work at at our relationship with Christ. We do. But I'm saying what we're looking at is not what the works of man can accomplish. Because the works of man can accomplish nothing that will last. But the working of God in our hearts can last for eternity. And so when we look and we understand that concept as Jesus addressing them, uh, addresses them, he's, he's got time for the Pharisees. I don't know if I was, if I was him, and it's a good thing that most of us say that, but it's a good thing that we're not. Uh, I'd probably just look at the Pharisaical crowd and say, you know what, I don't have time for you. I don't have time to waste on you because I've got all these other people out here that understand that they just need something that they can't find in their own. But Jesus never finds anyone, uh, he's never unwilling to, to speak truth and to show his love and compassion and sacrifice for anyone that's willing to come and listen. And so he entertains their questions. He entertains their questions even when they're ridiculous. He entertains their questions when they're designed to do nothing but to discredit him. Uh, or to cause him to, uh, to 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 ruin a moment within a meeting where he's going here. And so Simon comes, and after all of this, and he's interacting, Simon comes to him and says, Would you come and ha- have a, take a meal with us in my home? And Jesus consents, and so he comes into the home. And when he comes into the home, and just in the culture of their day, they walked virtually everywhere that they went. That was their mode of transportation, was, uh, was their own two feet. And so uh, their roads were... For the most part, dirt roads, and so everywhere they went, they had, they were dirty, they they were dusty. They, uh, it was commonplace when someone came into your home and their feet were sweaty and grimy and dirty that you would have uh, a basin of water for them uh, to have their feet washed or to wash their feet so that as they came in they could be comfortable and it would cool them and they could uh, they could en- enjoy uh, the company. Those are just things that we would that, that were expected and the realm of hospitality we have, our cultures different there are different things but there are things that we have expectations of uh, that are hospitable and so depending on what your your cultural or ethnic background is that varies a little bit i you know and it's little simple things it's little simple touches a lot of times my wife if you were to come to our home and she gave you a glass of something to drink is not going to give you that glass without a napkin or a paper towel or something wrapped around it that that's a cultural thing that's something that uh, and it's, it, it probably ought to be for more of us here uh, because it, the humidity, your glass is going to sweat. And so, where she grew up on an island, uh, th- that was just part of the culture. It's just little simple things. In some cultures, you you take your shoes off when you enter, and some uh, you do other things, or you greet a certain way. My wife uh, is a hugger, and so in her culture, uh, then when you when you meet people, even people that you really don't know that well, you're you're expected, if, and and you hug each other. And I've uh, you know, if we go to uh, a church with, with her family, everybody that walks in, it doesn't matter if they're first-time visitors, they hug one another and they greet one another in that way. That's, that's their culture. And so our culture may be a little different than this, but my point is that there were some expectations that were just cultural in nature that, that should have been afforded. And to not offer was offensive, to, to, to not come and to make these things available with saying to Jesus Simon begged him to come and then he says to him by his actions not by his words when he enters the house well you're here but I'm going to dishonor and disrespect you I'm not going to show you or afford you the normal, normal methods of hospitality and so that opens the door of opportunity for this woman now this woman the Bible doesn't give us here her name It doesn't tell us great detail about her but it is it is uh, it is insinuated that her sin was of a moral nature or an immoral nature uh, and that she was well known in the community everyone knew who she was there was no question what her uh, what her sins were everyone in the community would look at her and say yeah uh, this is this is all of her sins and there was a long uh, laundry list of, of things but She didn't care about their reaction to her. She saw an opportunity to come to the Savior and to to express her faith in him and to uh, hope that she would find forgiveness for her sin. And so she comes and she comes prepared. She comes prepared. It's like if she knows Simon and this is not an unusual thing for him because she brings ointment with her. She didn't ask for someone else to provide it. She didn't need water. She was broken over her sin. She was weeping uh, over her sin. And so she came and uh, and she began to weep upon the Lord's feet and to try to tend to his need that was neglected by his host. And uh, she used the ointment to, and, uh, to uh, care for his needs. And so I want to make, as we get started this morning, just some contrasting observations between this woman and Simon so that we can understand really what I believe is the primary point of this passage. She comes, this woman, and what we see is that when she comes with this alabaster box of ointment, this was not something that would have been easy for her to obtain. It was something that was costly. So what is it saying? It's saying that she brought to the Savior her very best. She did not just scrounge up something. She did not find something that would do or that would satisfy uh, the moment. She, she offered the best that she had. She was not going to disgrace or dishonor or insult the Lord by bringing less than her best. I, I don't, when, it, when we come to, uh, to worship the Lord, I, I want to bring him my best. I want to present myself in the best way that I can. I want to have my heart prepared uh, to worship. That's my best. If I uh, come in uh, saddled down with the burdens and the cares of the world and I really have not engaged mentally or in prayer to worship God and to hear the word of God preached and, uh, and to, or to deliver the message, in my case most Sundays, uh, then I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving God my best. I'm coming and I'm only giving him Apart. part. She doesn't offer a part. She doesn't offer an insult. She offers her best. She comes uh, trying to, uh, to express her great love for him. I think that she does that primarily because, and I think that this is one of the points, the main point, the theme that we'll see throughout the message this morning is this, that she recognized the reality of her sinful condition. More important than the community knowing that she was a sinner, she knew she was a sinner. There are a lot of times that everyone knows a lot of things about us that we refuse to acknowledge in ourselves. But the truth of the matter is that this woman comes and Simon's saying this is a sinner. He's resenting the fact that she's even in the house. But he had enough respect for the Lord that he wasn't going to send her away. But he's not happy that she's there, clearly. Clearly. And as she comes and she gives her best to the Lord, what she's coming is she's saying, I'm weeping, I'm broken over my sin. Just the presence of Jesus would bring an overwhelming conviction. If Jesus were to meet us out on the street, at, at the moment that we recognized him, I think that the very first feeling that we would have would be an overwhelming shame for our sin. I, I, just as a, as a pastor who's nobody, just a man that's sinful, there are a lot of times when someone maybe that's less comfortable uh, with me, if I see them out in town, particularly if they happen to be doing something that they would think I wouldn't approve of, which it really doesn't matter whether I approve of it or not. It matters whether God approves of it or not. Uh, but they're, they're, they'll hide from me. I, I've seen it happen over the years, multiple times. I've been in Walmart and actually chased someone around once because they were trying to get away from me. Uh, and so, and, and I knew what they were up to. And so, as soon as they saw me, they turned and ran. Uh, and so, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of ornery that way sometimes. So I just made a point. I was gonna, I was gonna chase her down until we said hello. Uh, and so, uh, and so, you know, I, it, and really. Uh, I don't even whatever it was that she was so ashamed of is so insignificant that at this point I don't even remember what it was. It didn't matter. But it was her perception, you see. It was the way she felt about it. And and there was just something because of my position and who I represented to her and her mind and heart, whenever she was doing something that she felt like was sinful, and she was confronted with the person that stands up and preaches to her God's holiness. She felt convicted, and she felt shamed. I, I, you know, a lot of times I, I stop and I think and I put myself here and I, you know if I saw Jesus I think I'd be excited. If I saw the Lord I think I would be overwhelmed with joy. But the more that I think about it and the more the older I get and the more realistically I look at my my life and um, and the you know the 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 inner reactions that I have sometimes to situations and. Uh, and things of that nature that, that are frustrating or that are hurtful or that, uh, that are, you know, the things that you just deal with in life. All of us do. I really am more and more convinced that if Jesus were to come and meet me out in the street or walk into the lobby of the church, the very first thing that would go through my mind would be the shame of the sins in my life. She's broken. She's weeping clearly the weight and the burden of her sin is upon her but her faith is great enough that she can overcome that and she can seek him out even if it means exposing her brokenness to the world she comes recognizing the reality of her sinful condition i wonder this morning how many of us here recognize the reality of our sinful condition so, Pastor, I've been saved a long time. There are a lot of things that I used to do that I don't do now that doesn't mean that you're without sin. Your sin may not look the same as it did 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 5 years ago, but you still have sin. So do I. I, I'm, I hope that, that if, if I look at my life after being saved uh, early in life and I look at the different stages of my life now in my mid-50s, that as I look out and say and look back... That the sin that I struggle with today is not the same sin that I struggled with 20 years ago. And God help us to grow past some of those things and have some victories in our life. But we'll never run out of things that need to be confessed, forsaken, and overcome until we're brought into his presence. Sometimes I think in our own pharisaical minds... That, that we drift naturally to that point where we come to think, you know what, my sin is not half as bad as what it used to be or what that person's is, so God, I'm grateful that you forgave me, but really, you didn't have that much to forgive. So, Pastor, no Christian would ever say that. We may not say it verbally, but we say it with how we live. And so she comes and she, she recognizes her sinful condition. She recognizes the identity of Jesus. This is not just some preacher passing through. This is not just some prophet. This is God in the flesh. She comes and she pays him homage. She honors him unconditionally. Do you notice that she, when she comes and she approaches, she doesn't stop and say, if you'll forgive my sins, then I'll wash your feet. If you'll forgive my sins, then I'll anoint you with my oil. If you'll forgive my sins and I'll weep and be broken and encouraged at your love for me. No, she just comes and she expresses everything that's bottled up in her that he's drawing out of her just merely by his presence. It's amazing how life changing it is when you just simply come into the presence of the Savior. So, Pastor, what's that like? Honestly, I, 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 there's no magic formula. When God decides to show up, he shows up. Amen. But he won't show up if we're not willing and waiting. If I'm too busy, he'll move along. But sometimes it's good to just be still and know that I'm God, that he's God. To be still and know that he's working. She, she honored him unconditionally. And then she expressed a humble faith that gained her salvation. We see that and we'll see it when we come to the end of the text this morning. But the the process of her hearing that God is here, being confronted with her own sin and not justifying it or blame shifting it or excusing it, but being broken by it and seeking his presence and loving him and offering a sacrifice unconditionally of her faith, pouring it out to him brings that salvation to her salvation this morning is by god's grace but it's through our faith and he extends grace because she's expressed faith then there's simon the host it's not much of a host on this day he reluctantly provides jesus a meal why do you say reluctantly pastor he invited him I don't know his mindset I can't pretend to know his heart but I think the evidence of the way that he treated the Lord when he came into his home would suggest at least that it was more of I want to have him in my home because it's going to boost my standing or he felt obligated in some way because of his position within the community I can't say that definitively the Bible doesn't spell it out for us but I do believe that his reaction and his response to the Lord indicate that and so he reluctantly provides Jesus a meal. He disrespects him with his rudeness. Say, so, well, he's not saying anything in a rude manner, but he did not greet him with the customary kiss. Nor did he offer him water to wash his feet. Those things were expected, and when they weren't offered, it was insulting. He looked down at Jesus as if he were beneath him which is evidenced by his thoughts when the woman comes in and begins to meet Jesus' needs he says that this man if he was a prophet he'd know what kind of woman she was and he wouldn't have anything to do with it so by his own response to her he's saying you're, you're, now you've proven yourself to be beneath me I have more spiritual discernment Jesus than you do that's effectively the message that he's, com- that he's communicating By the way, sometimes we communicate that message too. Say, Pastor, how? When we want to argue with Christ and when the, the Holy Spirit does convict us and when we sit in a service or a revival or we're having our private time alone with the Lord, reading our Bible and praying and God convicts our heart about something and we begin to argue with him and justify why it's okay for us or why it's not that big of a deal, what do we really say? And we say, Lord, I have more spiritual discernment than you do, it'll be okay. Within his own heart, he's rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. But he thought he loved God. This is not just somebody out in town. This is a Pharisee. This is someone that was recognized as a spiritual leader. This is someone that was held in high regard because of his position within the synagogue and again, within their their understanding and their study of God's law. This is someone that was looked up to and revered within the community. But though he loved God, he thought he was rejecting God. Churches are full this morning of people that believe with all their heart and all sincerity that they love God while they're rejecting him. Those that will not accept his truth. He questions the identity of Jesus when he again wonders if he's a prophet. So question this morning. Why is it that some are consumed with a passion for God while others are content with casual Christianity? Why is it that some are consumed with serving God, with knowing God, with, uh, with learning His Word? They're passionate about sharing their faith. They're passionate about uh, meeting the needs of others and, uh, and helping others along the way. And others are just content uh, to just live a casual Christian life. I'll go to church when it's convenient for me, and I'll read my Bible whenever I have a need, and I'll pray whenever my world's falling apart, and uh, I'll be a good person, I'll be an upstanding citizen, I'll be, but, I, but I'm just not willing to commit. What's the difference? I want you to notice in verse number 47 Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But notice the next phrase, but to whom little is forgiven. The same loveth little. So my argument this morning would be this. We either see our sin as great or we see it as small. We see it as overwhelming or we see it as insignificant. We see it as life condemning or we see it as just a minor bump in the road to whom little is forgiven. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a minute. Don't dismiss me just yet. I think let me give me a couple more statements and I'll clear this up. We're dealing here with perception. Her perception. The, and and here's a statement. The greater our view of our sin personally, the greater the forgiveness that we have experienced, therefore the greater love with which we love God. You'll follow what I'm saying this morning. If my perception of my own sin is that it was great and overwhelming and that God gave me great forgiveness, then I will love him passionately. On the other hand, if I feel as if my sin is, yeah, I'm a sinner pastor, but it's really not that bad. It's not, yeah, I'm I'm glad. I, I know I need to be saved, but I mean, after all, I haven't murdered anybody. I, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, committed assault, or uh, I haven't committed armed robbery. I haven't done all of these things that all culture would cry out and decry and say, those are horrible, sinful things. I, I'm not that bad a sinner. And I'm glad that God and that Jesus saved me. But, but he, he didn't have that much to forgive. Not like he did with this person over here. See, I'm forgiven, but it didn't take that much of God's grace. He had to use a lot more grace over here than he did for me. That person is not going to love much because they're not going to value what God's done for them. That's perception. Now, here's the reality. The reality is, is that it takes just as much of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse a prostitute as it does to wash away the lie of a small child. The truth of the matter is is that it takes just as much uh, of a, of Jesus sacrifice on the cross to save me as it did to save a murderer on death row. The reality is is that when it comes to our position in Christ or out of Christ, there's no distinction between our sin. I get it. I understand that once we're saved and uh, and when God gets to judging sin, there will be different degrees of suffering and different rewards for, uh, or, or withdrawal of rewards for different things. But that's not what we're talking about in salvation. What we're talking about in salvation is our position in Christ. I am either God's creation or God's child. The world would tell you that we're all God's children. That's a lie from the devil. We are all God's creation. But you do not become someone's child until you're born into their family. And when Jesus saved our soul, when we... our faith in Christ and we receive the grace of God the salvation then the Bible says as Jesus communicated to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 then we're born again we become a child of God say pastor how is that possible it is the supernatural work of God the salvation of a lost soul is not because man was good or because man was great or because man was anything it's the grace of God coupled with an access by the faith of man that brings us to a place and when I exercise my faith God extends his grace and it's a supernatural act of God no man can save himself no matter how good it takes just as much sacrifice to save me and you as it does to save someone that's committing horrible war crimes across the world The difference between this woman and Simon was only the way in which they viewed their own sin. She viewed her sin as huge and overwhelming and soul-destroying and he viewed his sin as insignificant. Three thoughts that I want to draw from this and point out this morning that I believe that Jesus is emphasizing here in the passage. He gives the story, there's a certain creditor and there are two debtors. May I say this morning that when it comes to sin, we owe a debt for our sin. We need the credit of God's grace to be extended. It doesn't matter how much you owe. It matters how much grace can be obtained. So pastor, how much grace do I need? as far as we're concerned, we just need enough. If, it, if, it, if in God's view, it takes more for this person or that person, that's, that's God's business. When it comes down to it, we just need the grace of God. Why? Because here's the reality of our sin. The reality of our sin, and he makes the case, and this is all about this woman's sin, the way that she sees it, the way Simon sees it, and what they do about it. So Jesus makes it out here. There's these, these two people. Which one? They've, they've both been forgiven. Neither one of them had the way to pay, Simon. When it came time to pay, they were both equally broke. One of them owed this much money and the other this much. And one of them owed $50 and one of them owed $50 million. But the one that owed $50, it might as well have been $50 million because he didn't have anything. I'm just making random numbers up for that, by the way. I'm not trying to say that the, the exact pence that he laid out there is equivalent to that. So, Sebastian, you really have to say that? You'd be surprised. When you look at what's going on here and you look at their attitude, Jesus just comes, Simon, which one's going to love him most? Well, it's a pretty obvious, straightforward deduction. So Simon's a smart guy. At least as smart as the average guy in town. And he says, The one that was forgiven more. There's your problem, Simon. You don't value me. You don't love me. You don't see the value that I'm bringing to your table this morning because you don't believe that your sin is great. And you're so focused on her sin that you can't see your own. And churches are far too consumed with identifying the sins of their brothers and sisters in Christ and the world around them than they are getting rid of the sin that's in their own life. And Simon, having this conversation with Jesus, is confronted with some things. And the woman is as well, but consider first of all this morning the reality of our sin. The reality of my sin. This is just a simple, straightforward message this morning the reality of sin is that sin, all sin, separates us from God. We cannot be in God's presence in a sinful condition state. Even for a Christian, when sin comes in and it's not confessed, it breaks our fellowship with God. It doesn't change our status as being his child, but it does break our fellowship. It does take away and uh, restrict on some levels his blessing. But sin separates from God, from the very Garden of Eden, from the very original sin. It separated us from God. It separated us from His love, from His provision, from all that God is. Sin separates from God. Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 8 gives a pretty extensive list. I I think really in this verse it, it identifies and you could boil almost all sin, if not all sin, down into these characteristics. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death whenever I'm sharing the gospel with someone out in the community and we go through that verse I'll I'll just ask them questions have I ever been afraid we've all been afraid but being afraid means that we're doubting God we're not trusting God and so we've been fearful. We all have. Unbelieving. There all have all been times that all of us have doubted. Uh, abominable. Well, pastor, I've never committed something that's an abomination to God. Come back and take a look at Proverbs chapter 6. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination. Proud look. Pretty sure that none of us are going to escape that one. And the last thing in the list is a lying tongue. And I'm quite certain that none of us are going to escape that one. Say, Pastor, you're calling us all liars because we are. Amen. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, and I'll ask somebody. If I'm sharing the gospel with them personally, I'll ask them this question. I'll just pick on Kyle here for a minute. He's in my line of sight. And I'll say something like this. Kyle, how many, how many people would I have to kill before the world would call me a murderer? Just one. just one. How many lies do I have to tell before God would call me a liar? We're all liars. That's an abomination. The fearful, the abominable. We've we've all committed sin that's grievous enough to reach the state of an abomination to God. Listen to the list again. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, just across the page says, "Then, then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We get into too deep of theology this morning, but when we speak of hell as eternal, we're really not accurately reflecting what the Bible teaches it's easy for people to understand so we tend to use that terminology but hell truly is temporary. When the white throne takes place hell will be taken and cast into a lake of fire. The lake of fire is eternal. If, if, if that confuses you I'll be, I'll be happy to sit down and take more time uh, to explain that outside of this message. Uh, but, it, it, but the reality is is that God has a place where Uh, where we're in waiting until those that had put their faith in God were in waiting until the resurrection of Christ and those who are going to be judged at the white throne are in waiting until the white throne judgment that's death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death what is that that's a result of sin that's what sin does So we can look at here and we consider their perception of their sin, sin, all sin, separates from God. My sin separates me from God. It puts me in hell and it puts me in the lake of fire. And without the grace of God and my faith in God to accept that gift of salvation, the only place that I'm going to go by default, not because I'm a sinner, but because because I've rejected Christ. Say, so, well, what sin's bad enough, pastor, to, uh, to send you to, to hell? The sin of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. When you boil all, when it all comes down to, it doesn't matter how many lies you've told or people you've killed or abominable acts you've committed. What matters is, did I tr- put my faith and trust in Jesus or did I reject him? And a rejection of him is a sin that will condemn me for all of eternity into a lake of fire. Because my sin separates me from the God that loves me and created me. Sin, all sin separates us from God. Sin produces death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. The wages of sin. My payment for my sin. If you've got a job, you understand what I'm talking about. You you go to your job, you do your work, you put in your time, and at the end of the pay period, you get a check cut to reward you for what you've put in. You earn, you get what you've earned. What we have earned, what humanity has earned because of our sin is death. It brings and reveals itself in our flesh. But ultimately, it's the spirit that died in the Garden of Eden. And unless that spirit is reborn, we are condemned. We were condemned at birth. We were condemned already. We didn't have to sin to be condemned. We were born in a state of condemnation. John uh, chapter 3 makes that very clear. Uh, whenever we see Jesus, we love John three sixteen, and rightfully so, but we stop reading when we get to uh, the end of verse 16. But if we kept going, what we would learn is that for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, we love darkness. We don't love light. In our nature, we don't love God, we love sin. He tells us that in verse number 19, and this is the condemnation. He identifies it, that light, Jesus, has come into the world, and that men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil, because we're without Christ. When we look and we see the reality of our sins, sin separates us from God, and sin produces death. For the wages of sin is death. And this truth that Simon could not accept. Sin is sin. He gave the list. Some things we would look at and feel insignificant. That's an insignificant thing. Some that's a great thing. I've only committed the insignificant ones. So I'm not as bad as somebody else. Truth is, sin is sin. Just a couple of months, September 11th is going to roll around. It's going to be a big week here. It's going to be our church's 50th anniversary celebration observance on that actual day. We'll have a revival that week with a guest speaker through Monday through Wednesday. and <coughs> We'll look at what's happening, but when we think of September 11th, most of us, remember where we were what we were doing it's very vivid in my mind I know exactly where I was in my office at a boys home I was working I had several teenage boys that I was responsible for trying to help them get their life on track and keep them out of jail and get their lives turned around and uh, I was in my office working and my mom called and she said you need to turn the news on go home turn on the news my house was just right across the street from where our office was and, uh, and she said a plane hit the World Trade Center and, and I, just, I just missed it honestly I just thought you know what I'm really busy. Um, I've got a lot to do today. It's not that I'm not interested, but I just really don't have time for that. And in my mind, I'm thinking some little SESTA just kind of like clipped the building and tragic, but not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. And then she calls back and another one hits. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, something's up. So I go look and see, and I'm mesmerized like, those of you in the room that are old enough to remember this were mesmerized. And I never left the front of the screen where everybody came together in one room. I brought all the guys that were there and we crammed about 30 of us in my living room and, and we watched and was watching whenever the first tower collapsed and, and disbelief. And then watching as the second one collapsed and disbelief. And you know, the thing, is, the thing is about that day, 2,763 people died just in the two towers. It's not counting the Pentagon. It's not counting Pennsylvania. It's not counting people that were on the ground around about. 2,763 people that were still in the towers when they came down. Or that were, were in the towers when the attack hit. You know, once the towers collapsed, only 23 were pulled from the rubble alive. The last one, 27 hours after the, the collapse of the second tower. You know, on that day, it didn't matter if you were, With the moment of collapse, it didn't matter if you were on the 10th floor, the 30th floor, the 70th, 5th, 75th floor, or the 100th floor. If you were in the building when it came down, you were dead. What's the point, Pastor? My point is it doesn't matter if in the tower of sin, as the world would identify it. When my life comes to an end, if I'm on the 10th, 50th, 75th, or 100th, without Christ, it doesn't matter. My destination is the same. When we look and we consider the reality of our sin, that sin is cruel, that sin is indiscriminate, that sin is natural. It's the essence of who we are at birth. And it's only the grace and the love of God that make it possible for us to have a new nature restored in us so that we can commune and fellowship with God. Because he's made our spirit that was dead regenerated or he's made it come alive again. Praise God. That's what we mean when we say born again. That a dead spirit has restored us to our creative state where we are once again finally in the image of God, no longer just a body and a soul, but once again a body and a soul and a spirit. Amen. The reality of our sin is that it's cruel and that it's condemning. Secondly, I want you to consider the reality of our salvation. The reality of my salvation is this that Jesus died once for all. John chapter number or excuse me Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10 said but by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He didn't suffer over and over again, he offered himself once for all. The reality of my salvation is this, is that number one, the cost of it was the same for every sin. Didn't cost Jesus different for your sin or my sin or someone else's sin. It cost him the same. He made the same sacrifice. That when it comes to sin in relation to our salvation, sin is sin. And this is again a concept that Simon could not accept. He could not bring himself to accept that he was just as ungodly and wicked as this woman that the whole community condemned. Even though the very God that created him was standing and sitting at his table. He could not perceptively get it. Jesus died once for all. And I, I would say this this morning too, is secondly here about the reality of salvation. And this is, I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, but I do I'm trying to move us along here. Saving faith comes only after I see my need. It doesn't matter how boldly, it doesn't matter how simply, how well communicated any preacher makes or any Christian makes a presentation of God's plan of salvation to a lost sinner. If that sinner does not believe that they have a need, they will not receive it. Simon could not accept what Jesus was saying because he didn't believe he needed it. I'm just telling you this morning that we all needed it. Yeah, amen. Without exception, yes. we need it. And we need Christ daily. Yes. We've seen the reality of our sin, the reality of our salvation, and consider lastly the reality of my service again he comes back and he says wherefore I say unto thee in verse 7 her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but to whom little is forgiven the same loveth little and he said unto her thy sins are forgiven and they that sat at meet with him began to say within themselves who is this that forgiveth sins also they still are missing the point And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. She loved much because her sin was great. She loved because she felt as if what her level of forgiveness was awesome. It it was beyond what she thought possible. The reality of our service is this. First of all, I would say this. I will serve in proportion to my love. Notice what he says in John, again, John chapter 14. In John chapter 14 and verse number 15, he says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. So, Pastor, I love the Lord. Are you keeping his commandments? Well, some of them. Don't miss the point here. To To the amount of love that I have for God... I will serve him I will obey him you have a lot of people in your life as do I we have a lot of people in our lives that we love we do not love them all the same our love for them is not equal I don't believe that anybody could truly say that their love for every single person in their life that they love is equal Some are loved more than others. Some people are just easier to love. Especially within families. He's saying here, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Why is it that some Christians keep his commandments? Why is it that some Christians serve God passionately? Why is it that some Christians are, are, are fully dedicated to making God a part of their marriage and their child rearing and their grandparenting and their work life and their, uh, and their daily life and everything that they do? Why is it that some, that everything revolves around Christ and for others we're content to just show up an hour a week on Sunday? How much do we love Our love is reflected in our service. I serve in proportion to my love. Secondly, I would say this, I love in proportion to the forgiveness that I have obtained. If I do not believe that God forgave me of great and horrible sins, then I will not love him as much as someone that believes that they were forgiven a lot. It's the, the principle that he's laying out here. Thirdly, I would say this, as I interpret my sin, I interpret my forgiveness. Again, in verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth a little. And I'm just saying this morning that I love as I am forgiven. In other words, say, Pastor, but we're all forgiven the same, but we don't all perceive that we're forgiven the same. How I perceived I was forgiven is the, the amount of love that I will express back to God. If I look and feel as if God uh, just came out and helped walk me across the street and prevented me from getting run over and, uh, and it was safe, rather than he ran into exposing himself to danger and plucked me out of a burning building that I had no hope of surviving, then I will love him forever. And we simply do not love God the way that God loved us because we do not perceive that God had to sacrifice much to save us. He had to give everything. The reality this morning is this, that every child of God has obtained the same level of forgiveness. Well, pastor, you just don't know. So and so, they had to man. They had a lot more sin than I did. That's your problem. It's a perception problem. The reality is, is that that sin still required the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross. He loved us all. He forgave us all. We'll put our trust in Him. And I'll close with this: casual Christians simply do not understand what they have in Christ. Someone that can just go along and just. Just be a half hearted Christian simply does not yet fully appreciate what they have in the Savior and the price that He paid to save them and the level of commitment that He's offering to transform their life. If we all believed that God would do and make of our lives what He says He would do and wants to make, then we would drop everything and line up. But if we don't understand that it's a need, then we will not commit ourselves to it. Casual Christians squander the Christian life that God intended them to live. Life's greatest opportunities and blessings are forfeited on the sacrifice of misperception. On the altar of misperception. What's your point this morning, Pastor, this? Is, it's just simply this. I'm a big fat bald, despicable sinner. Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. You understand Paul's perception here? Arguably, the greatest Christian that ever lived viewed himself as the greatest of the world's sinners. Paul was a great sinner. But I could make a pretty long list of people that were far greater sinners throughout history than the Apostle Paul. But it didn't matter. Because he was forgiven. And because he viewed his forgiveness as great, he loved greatly. And he committed his life to the gospel of Christ. My friends, this morning, I will only love God as much as I appreciate the level of forgiveness that I've received from God. How much do you love Him? I would dare say that if we would be honest with ourselves and with the Lord this morning, that we would have to say that we don't love Him as much as we think we do. But I want to love Him more. Pastor, how do I love him more? Get an honest view of your sin. Get a biblical perception of sin. And the more that I understand what my sin has done to me, what my sin has done to this world, and what my sin did to my Savior, the greater I will appreciate his love and his sacrifice for my soul. And the more devoted to him I'll become, not because I feel obligated, but because I can't help but express my love to someone that has expressed such great love to me. It is the easiest thing in the world to love your child or your grandchild when they're about eight months to 15 months old because everything they do is cute and they just love. I walked out yesterday and my little seven-month-old grandson was sitting at the table and every time you walk in the room his eyes just light up and he follows you around and he's kind of figuring out the reach up and the reach out and he's always smiling it doesn't take much to get a smile out of him it doesn't take much to make him content if he's clean and he's rested and he's fed that, that, that's all he that's all he cares about that's all he needs and it's easy to love a little guy on the other hand, when they get to a point where they start sassing, talking, trying to get away with that, I'm not saying that we don't love them, I'm just saying it makes it a little bit more difficult to enjoy. It's, it's easy to pick up that little one and just love them because the only thing that they understand is the love that they receive from you and they're just oozing to give it back. When we realize how much love God has given to us, the natural response is to give it back. Not to get, but to just say, Lord, I love you. Do we love him this morning? So we close this morning, consider this. Whether you're Simon or whether you're that woman, on either side, on the the wrong side of the salvation coin, how do I get there, Pastor? How do, I put my, how, do I, how do I know I'm going to heaven? How do I know that Jesus is my Savior? You have to do what Simon wouldn't do and what the woman did. You have to see that your sin has separated from you, from you from God and that your sin is grievous to God. Even if it doesn't seem that big to the world at large, it was big enough to cause Jesus Christ to leave the perfection of heaven, to walk as a man on this earth, to become our sin on Calvary's cross, to have God pour out all of the wrath of, on, uh, on his body of all the sin that would ever be created unto his broken body. That the power of God would be displayed and that he would be raised from the grave. That my sin and your sin did that. When I recognize that because of my sinful condition, I am separated from God, but because of God's love for me, He paid that price that I might be restored. What this woman is expressing here is that God, Jesus, you have grace. I am, by pouring out my tears, by cleaning your feet, by kissing your feet, demonstrating my faith in you, would you dispense your grace upon me? Why would that go about that way? For Simon. Simon couldn't understand Her faith, if it was just stated, he saw her faith. It's the difference between faith of Romans and faith of James. Faith without works is dead. Her faith expressed. And because she expressed her need, she received the grace of God. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you. And I know that because of my sin, i am separated from you for all of eternity. But I also know that you became my sin and you love me so much that you came and offered yourself in sacrifice for me. Lord Jesus, I received the gift of your salvation, your sacrifice on Calvary's cross. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you come into my heart? Would you be my savior? When that happens, There is an instantaneous supernatural act of God that rebirths a dead spirit within our heart and makes us born again. And when we're born again, we can communicate with Jesus because we're his child. My friends, if you've never done that this morning, please don't leave without doing it. If you don't know how, if you need some more help, just when the invitation is given in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to, bow our heads, we're gonna close our eyes, the piano's gonna play, and I'm just gonna say, if you want to know that Jesus Christ is your savior and that you're gonna go to heaven when you die without any doubt, submission, I really know that with any doubt. John wrote in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. He wants you to know without any doubt. It's not just a matter of, hey, have we done some creative reading and found it? No, he said, I want you to know. I didn't do all this and try to keep it a secret. I want you to know. I want you to know I love you. I want you to know I've sacrificed myself for you. I want you to know that I want to change your life. But if you don't see that you have the need, you can't. And if you're sitting here this morning and God's speaking to your heart, and you're wondering how to go about that, when we stand, just come. What's going to happen, Pastor? I'm going to have someone, if you're a guy, a guy, if you're a lady, a lady, and take you to another room, and they're going to answer your questions, and they're going to show you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. You won't be singled out. You won't be embarrassed. You won't be pressured. They'll present you with the truth. They'll show you how to receive the gift, and the choice to receive it or to say no is yours. No pressure. Just knowledge. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit in your heart drawing you to Christ, if you'll let him. Perhaps you're here this morning as a Christian and you'd say, Pastor, really thought a lot of myself, apparently. I need God to make my sin big in my own eyes so that I'll love him like I should. The invitation's open for you too.